Our teaching text this morning is Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then, they t- then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Uh, I got my wife a child for Mother's Day. Oh, oh, thank you. So, what'd you get? Just kidding. Just kidding. That's not the, that's not the right. That's not the right question. Um, thank you so much. Many of you uh, have prayed and uh, prayed for us over this last little bit. Um, both because we're having a child and because we're having that child in 600 square feet um, of, of housing. Um, we, we need the prayers to go on. Uh, our fourth a boy, Gideon Champ Clardy, was born Thursday, 12.45 a.m. This, this is the best way to start a sermon. It's just to, to talk about what's going on with me. Um, uh, <laughs> So, we call, we, I'm just going to tell you why, why, because people keep asking me. Um, we call him Gideon because uh, of the Bible story. And um, Gideon was a man of faith and courage, but also relational depth with God that he was able to ask some hard questions and challenging moments. Um, 
We'd love for our son to be a man of faith and courage who has a relational depth with God. We call him Champ because he, he's always going to win. Um, no. No. Uh, well, actually, when I was in China for a summer after college, I, I lived with a family um, that I just respected so much. And their, their baby of their family was a boy named Peter Allen. And he had the hugest head of any child ever. Um, <laughs> But they called him Champ, and I've always, just always thought that was fantastic. Um, and also, our prayer for, for him is uh, that he would um, sort of run the race marked out for him, that God has set, set for him, that he would fix his eyes on Jesus all the days of his life. So that's stuff we're praying for our kid, and uh, very happy. Seven pounds, seven ounces, born on the seventh. That's all, those are Jesus numbers, people. 777. It also means completion. Done. Time to get a surgery or something. Uh, st- like, can we get to the road to the uh, Emmaus, please? Is that possible? Um, this, this, this is the title track of the sermon series. Did our hearts not burn within us? So, you know, you flip to the title track of the record to see how it's going to be. Um, Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we bless you. We thank you that you are such a good and gracious God. Certainly, with a, a room with this many people in it, there are many different perspectives on what you're actually like. And I just pray that you would just reveal yourself to us, God, for... Those of us who who are struggling to recognize you, I pray that our eyes would be opened, Lord. Uh, For those of us who feel like we're trudging, trudging home, uh, disillusioned and disappointed, I pray that you would reawaken hope in our hearts, God. Uh, I thank you for the blessing of the moms in our community, God. I just pray this would be a special day for them. and uh, We just honor, honor you, God, as our Father and as one who also nurtures us so well. Would you give us ears to hear in these next moments uh, from, this, from this story, and from your spirit? Um, help us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. So it seems like this is, we've had enough of a pattern going on with these Jesus showing up somewhere um, that we should, uh, we should make mention of the fact that every time he shows up, even to people who knew him really, really well, he's unrecognizable. And I think that's a bit weird. Uh, I don't know if, if that detail has stood out to you as we've been going through these, um, this series of encounters after the resurrection, before the ascension. What does Jesus do with these crucial 40 days um, of, of time? And you, you might imagine we could think of a whole bunch of things he could possibly do, but he spends his time going around helping people who knew and loved him who are greatly disillusioned because of the cross recover their hope and recover their sight and recover their lives and restore them from shame as we saw with Peter. And we're actually jumping a little bit chronologically. We did all the John narratives um, the first few weeks and now we've jumped. So actually this, this Emmaus walk, these uh, journeying pilgrims that encounter Jesus and have a conversation with him. This happens even before the disciples are locked away uh, in the room. This, this happens before that. Um, so if, if you're tracking the, the chronology here, um, this, is, uh, this, is before they've, this is before they've seen Jesus. So this is well before the, the breakfast that we talked about last week. But um, I don't know what to say about the fact that everyone 
that he runs into doesn't recognize him. It's like when we started looking through these texts and preparing for this series that we were talking amongst the TGC pastors about that. It's like, there's got to be something there, but I don't know like how to draw like a nice, neat bow around that. But um, I, 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 I say a few things that have occurred to my heart. One is that even after the miracle of resurrection, right? Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. Like something definitive has happened. Something so substantial that he declares the work of, rede- like, of redemption is done. All the burden of s- sin and brokenness is placed on Jesus on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. But then there's still a deep, deep need for revelation. <laughs> it is finished, but then it's also still going on. And uh, I-, I think that points something to... Uh, to the heart of God, that he is the type of God that uh, has made this world and has made us for relationship primarily. That's something we talk about at Trinity Grace a lot, that we are created for relationship. And, and God, like the religious system of Christianity, is not like, hey, this thing has been done for you now. Now get along living your life and hopefully you'll, you'll keep to the path in a sense. No, it's walking in relationship with Jesus. So even though it is finished on the cross and something new has fundamentally begun, we're still in this place that requires Relational dependence. Jesus has to reveal himself. And that says something too for our ability to go on a spiritual pursuit out of our own resources. Which in a sense the fact that Jesus is unrecognizable is a bit of a death blow to the American uh, story of self-sufficiency that we've all believed so hard. That we can do it on our own, that we'll sort of cut and, 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 and pick and choose and we'll craft our own narrative, right? And and these people who should have recognized, it should have been a celebration. They're kept from recognizing him. We can't do this on our own. <laughs> we require revelation. So, pretty simple story. Two people, uh, one of them named Cleopas and someone else, unnamed. Some scholars think this is Cleopas and his wife, um, I mean, and Jesus' closest friends, like all the ladies were named Mary, so this could, we could say this is Cleopas and Mary, I don't know. If you're at a party with Jesus' closest friends and you don't know someone and it's a girl, you should guess Mary. But they're trudging home in disillusionment and a stranger starts walking with them. And I want us just to see a few, a few details uh, here, so I'm just going to read through the top part again. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked, they discussed these things with each other. And Jesus came, Jesus himself came and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked, what are you discussing as you walk along together? Discussing together as you walk along. And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, where are you from? Are you, the, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. So, just peel back a couple of quick layers. One is the town they were going to does have some significance. Emmaus was like a bunker hill uh, in the cultural memory of Israel. A, a, a huge battle in the fight for independence um, a, a, a few generations back in Israel had taken place at Emmaus. Have you guys, we've talked about him in here before, but at the beginning of the Hasmonean dynasty, this hundred year period of Jewish independence, they, they won a, a, a fundamental victory led by a guy named Judah the Hammer. 
one of the coolest names in history. Uh, we thought about that as a middle name, Gideon the Hammer, but um, we decided to go with Champ um, instead. Also, high hopes, high hopes. Um, but basically, I, I, I even mention that because it, it comes into how they were expecting Jesus to be. It, it, it shines a little bit of the light on their disappointment for, for Jesus not fulfilling the messianic hopes of Israel. But it's because their last Messiah was Judah the Hammer, in a sense, who had won freedom for them by military might and by courage and by faith and, and by fighting tooth and nail to drive the oppressors back and to recapture the hope and promise that God had sowed into the story of Israel all the way back at Abraham. I'm going to use you to make a great nation And now it seems like all those promises are delayed, right? Because they're occupied by the mightiest force in the world again. Roman dominance is everywhere. And we thought he was going to be the one who was going to do something about it. And they're from Emmaus. They're from Bunker Hill. They're from a place that a a turning point battle had taken place. It would have been in their cultural memory. So just a detail to keep in mind. Another detail is they're walking seven miles. So, I, you know, <laughs> I don't know how long it takes you to walk seven miles, but this conversation is a long conversation. It, it goes on for several hours, and we only have a few snippets of it here, but I just want you to imagine that Jesus was walking with them for a, a long time and keep that, um, keep that in your mind as, as, we, as we move through the story. And the next thing is that Jesus is a bit cheeky with them. His tone is interesting. They're despairing, trudging home, He's like, he's like almost like a parent on Christmas morning and all the gifts have been opened, but they know they've stashed a bike in the garage the kid doesn't know about. And he's like, did you get everything you wanted? <laughs> no, you didn't. Well, sometimes we have to deal with disappointment, don't we? Why don't you go get me a screwdriver out of the garage? <laughs> he strolls up walking with them. Their hearts are broken. He's like, what are you guys talking about? And there they stop, like, who are you? What, do you not know what's happened? What things? Tell me of these things. And I think that's interesting. So I wanted to note it. At least because God has a different perspective when we're disillusioned and broken down and, and feel like we're at the end of our rope and we're trudging away in despair. And I feel like sometimes he is fatherly like that and in his response to us to say, do you think you see the whole picture? You've got it all figured out and you've decided on despair. I have something hidden in the garage. So, he says, what things to them? And then they launch into their version of the, of the events that have happened. They give, they give the but we had hoped version of the story. So we'll just, we'll just quickly read their summary of everything that's happened um, about Jesus of Nazareth. That's the things they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, but they did not see Jesus. 
just a few details of their version of the story. We had hoped. We had hopes for him. We had, we had plans for him. We were following him because he was going to finally be the one who brought the promises to pass, who pushed back the oppressors, who made our story have a happy ending. He was the one. We, we, had, we had plans for him. And so with each of these questions, I do want to just put that to us. Do you, do you have expectations for God that you feel like have gone unmet? This is time for the honesty in your inner monologue because no one can hear it. Do you have expectations for God that you feel like have gone unmet? But we had hoped. And that's a very, very painful place to be when you feel like your heart has been deflated that slowly the hope has leaked out of it and you feel flat and you're trudging away from the story you thought you were living. And so it might be if you have expectations for God or uh, how he's going to work in your life or how he operates in our world, you're in good company. These are disciples who had walked with Jesus, who, who knew him well. So God's not afraid of our, our doubts or our, our lack of hope at times. But it might mean that that's not the final word. They believe that the story is over, but actually Jesus comes to reorient them. And, and God might want to do that work in your life. If you have expectations that you feel like you've been devastated, that you've placed on God and they have not been met, or it might be that you need to be reoriented in your expectations because you were wanting something that was more out of your story than out of God's character and God's promises. That's a possibility. But also it might just simply be that the story's not over yet. That you're in the middle of a seven-mile walk and you're not to where you're going yet. And we need to have some courage to doubt our doubts. To them it looked like the story was over. That pain and brokenness had won again. That the dominance of the powerful had put the light out. That a definitive turn for the worst had happened. And, and that's really important because the, they said some of our women amazed us. Which is a very interesting way of describing that they came and told us about the resurrection. It's like, did they come juggling? Some of our women amazed us with tales of wonder. But we didn't even bother to go look for ourselves. Right? That's a level of hopelessness that we should pay attention to. Like, I can't even get out of bed. Why bother? Not again. They're not easily convinced. They need a very long walk. C.S. Lewis has this, this metaphor um, for, for people hearing the promises of God and uh, he talks about the difference between a virgin and a divorcee. He says, when someone's being wooed, right, for the first time, they're falling in love for the first time, and they, they hear from their, their potential lover wor- words of promise and, 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 and flattery and, and poetry and, and, and songs and declarations of love, and they believe it with their whole heart. And then life happens. And brokenness seeps in and you find out that the person that you're with has a whole bunch of hidden brokenness just like you have a whole bunch of hidden brokenness and sometimes those relationships fracture and we find ourselves alone again. And you know what? Someone who's been through a divorce, the very next time they they get into a relationship, their hearts are not as easily won. 
They don't believe the flattery as quickly. They don't believe the words, the declarations of love as, as easily. And these walking away from Jerusalem are like that. And maybe some of you are like that. You're like, this is my very last shot at considering God. This is my very, very last shot at considering church people. Oh my gosh. If you knew the things that have happened to me in a church. So your very nice rhetoric and words, they only go so far for me because my heart has been broken. I think Jesus is ready to come walk alongside you. And help say that maybe the wound inflicted on your heart is not the last word in your story. But we have to note in their version of the story, they were not easily convinced. And so Jesus very simply begins the process of reorientation. And he says, you see in part, and you know in part, and your understanding is like through a dim glass. Let me break the glass and expand your horizons. Let me set your present pain in the context of a whole story and give some coherence to what's happening here. Jesus gives them the long, the long version of the story and it ends with the word glory. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. I love how Eugene Peterson describes this moment. When Jesus broke in and took up his end of the conversation, he picked up the fragments of their conversation and fit them into the large and comprehensive revelation written in the Holy Scriptures. He showed them detail by detail how what had thrown them into bewilderment and confusion made perfect sense when seen and heard as a part of what God had been doing and saying all along. Holy Scripture is an orientation in largeness and coherence. Holy Scripture rescues us from the out-of-breath stutters of distracted and amnesiac journalists who think they're keeping us in touch with what is important. As the Emmaus, not Emmas, as the Emmaus pilgrims, I had a kid this week, relax. As the Emmaus pilgrims listened to Jesus expounding on the Scriptures that day, they realized they weren't dealing with the latest thing, but the oldest thing. They were, as we say, getting the picture. One of the most profound things God can do for us, one of the things that's one of the deepest needs of our life, is to have the threads of our story woven together so that we can make sense of them. And God is in the business of doing that, of giving coherence, of weaving threads together to make a beautiful picture, of of reorienting us, of showing us where we are, of reminding us who we are. So they're on their way to Emmaus, and they said, we had hoped that this would be, this man, this Messiah would be the one who would finally redeem Israel. And Jesus comes to them and he says, no, listen, from the very beginning, this promise has been sown like a seed, and it's been growing, and it's been growing. And just like the prophet said, Messiah was going to have to come and demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like in word and deed. And then he was going to have to suffer a death that would be an atoning death, that would be a victorious death, that would be a substitute death. That he would have to do that, but then he would raise and give new life. And so, the way of Emmaus 
is not going to work anymore. The way of power dominance and military victory, that just wins for a short amount of time. And the revolution I am bringing, Jesus says, is one that transforms our life from the inside out and makes us a new type of people and a new type of humanity. And once they're reoriented, they finally recognize him. But in a special way, in a meal. And I'll just, read, I'll just read it to you. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. This guy is so tricky. He just shows up, walking, what are you talking about? Then they finally recognize him and he's gone. They ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. He reorients their understanding of the story that they're in and then he gives them a moment of recognition and he ties it to this meal. It's very significant. In a sense, this is like a pattern for the gathered church. We come and we have our lives reoriented around the promises and the story of the scripture. And then we look to recognize Jesus in this meal and in one another in communion. This, this road to Emmaus is a, is a, is a pattern for, for the church going forward. Quick question, actually asking, not rhetorical. What's the first meal recorded in the Bible? The apple, yes. Someone said the fruit over here too. I'm not a hundred. We're not a hundred percent. Scholars are divided. If it was an apple, um, isn't it interesting that you go into any coffee shop around here and there's all the glowing apples with one bite taken out? Anyway, uh, what are we saying? What are we saying? What are you saying? Yes, you can get the Apple Watch. It's fine. Whoa, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. Two and two together. The first meal recorded in the Bible is the eating of the fruit. Right? And we know, we know right, that God had set these people that he had made at the apex of his creation in his image with the capacity for relationship. And yet he had put this opportunity for them to trust him beyond what they could see, even in paradise, right? Love seems to require the ability to make choices that matter. And so even in the very beginning, God gives some instructions that are connected to his character as a father, as a protector, as a provider, And Eve eats the fruit and her eyes are open. She eats the fruit and then she has a moment of terrible recognition. That's how the whole thing falls apart, literally. 
And we, we, talk, we talk about this all the time, but there was brokenness in every level of relationship from that point forward. Eve eats whatever fruit it was, and there's a terrible moment of recognition where brokenness enters her, there's a fracture in her relationship with God. There is a fracture in their self-understanding, fear and insecurity leak into their hearts for the very first time. There's blame shifting and murder that soon follow right on the heels of this revelation of brokenness. There's... The, uh, the ground becomes harder to work. Childbirth, I just witnessed it, becomes very difficult. A meal is taken and, revel- and eyes are opened, but in the worst possible way. Now fast forward to Jesus. This is an important detail. Jesus, when he's eating the last meal with his disciples, he says to them, I'm not going to eat this meal with you again until the kingdom comes. Now, I always thought that meant like celestial golden table in the clouds kind of when the kingdom comes. Like all the old spirituals my grandmother wandered around the house singing. Jesus is eating this meal with them right now. What is he saying with that? In the resurrection, the kingdom has come. In Jesus' death and resurrection and the new life that he offers and the reorienting, hope-giving, life-sustaining new life that Jesus offered, the kingdom has come. It is coming. It is already here. It's not yet fully entirely realized, but it's already here. Days later, Jesus is at the table again. He's using the same language. He's going through the same motions. We should understand that like the first meal in the old creation brought a revelation of brokenness this is the first meal in God's new creation and like Eve's eyes have been open to hopelessness the eyes of these two are open to hope and to a world they would not have known before it's so important that they recognize him in the breaking of bread God chooses some pretty pedestrian modes to communicate some of the deepest things possible kingdom of God is like a seed You know what you need? You know the one thing you're going to need to continue this resurrection community going forward? Bread and a cup and a bath. I want you to be baptized to symbolize that your your old way of living is gone and you're raised to walk in a newness of life. And then regularly I want you to come together and have your hearts reoriented. And then I want you to share a meal together that will always remind you of me. And there's, there's a pattern of Eucharist that Jesus establishes here. Taken, blessed, broken, given. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. It's the pattern of the Eucharist the church has followed. I'm looking for misspellings. It's also the story of our lives as disciples of Jesus. We are taken, we are blessed, we, we are in some senses broken and given away, poured out for our world. So we're just going to super quickly move through taken. We begin with this picture of being present. We are taken, we take the bread. I think this means at least that we are to treat the present moment as a sacrament, as a gift from God. If our eyes are going to be open, our hope is going to be restored. It can only happen within the circumstances of this present moment. When are the opportunities that you can choose to to believe and trust the promises of God? Right now. 
C.S. Lewis says the, the present is the only point where time touches eternity. The only place that you can follow God is now. We, have, we are obsessed with the future and obsessed with the past. And God is saying, hey, be right here. 18th century French spiritual director Jean-Pierre de Cassade. I'm sure that's how he pronounces his name. said, we are to abandon ourselves to the present moment and simply intend to do God's will. Which will mean one of three things. To do some present duty, to enjoy some present joy, or to suffer in the spirit of the cross. Take, accept this moment, and then blessed. Right? In the, in the long history of, of Hebrew tradition, to bless something, to give thanks for it, to name it what it is. Whenever anything is received with thanksgiving, it is blessed. To do that, we may have to let go of resentments. This is why we need this meal. It calls our motives into question. It asks, do we believe that we truly have been blessed? Thanksgiving is the characteristic Christian stance before the world. Our eyes are open, our hope is restored, and we receive thankfully, and then broken. We take, bless, and break. The bread must be broken in order for it to be shared. This is about our willingness to to surrender to the Lord and His will. We must be willing to surrender our own will in order to enter into something greater than ourselves, to the story we've been reoriented into. We, We have to daily... Allow our own wills to be broken. (laughs) To receive and walk in the way of Jesus. And then, given. We are in a place to give of ourselves, to give ourselves to God, to one another, to our neighbor, but only after we have been embraced, blessed, broken. It's the pattern of the meal. It's the pattern of the church. They eat with Jesus and they recognize him. And then it says, they took off. Jesus vanished. They're like, all right, well, let's get out of here. And they they returned at once. Now, they walked seven miles. They trudged seven miles in daylight because they're like, we have to get away. They've finally gotten back to their home. They've just sat down to eat a meal. And then they immediately jump up and they go back with haste, and it's dark. It's now, it's now evening, and they're, they're traveling all these hours back. Something had taken hold of their hearts. <laughs> now, even in the darkness, they have the light of, of a reoriented hope, a restored hope, a recovered hope. And they run back and say, it is true. We've seen Jesus. Pay attention to that pattern, right? Have an encounter with Jesus, like say every seven days we come together as a church to have an encounter with the promises of the scriptures, to be reoriented by that story, to share in this meal where we recognize him and then to go out into the world and with our lives, with our words and actions and community and love and forgiveness and mercy to say it is true. To say with our lives, it is true. Resurrection is true. We're going to practice the resurrection. We're going to live in the resurrection. We are going to be people of the new creation. Even though we have all of our own brokenness, we have a thousand reasons to trudge away in hopelessness. We've encountered Jesus. He's reoriented us. We've recognized him and now we're being given away. Our lives are being given away in the name of 
of love to say it is true. Jesus really is who he says he is. And I'm a bad example at times, but you can look at my life and our life and this community and say, no, grace is real. Hope is, is real. Like the cynicism of our world, the sophisticated lack of enthusiasm of our borough, perhaps. There are things worth running seven miles at night to tell people about. Of letting your feet be sore and your legs exhausted and your hands burning and to cry tears, to give yourself away for something. N.T. Wright speaks about this simple story. He says, at the level of drama, it has everything. Sorrow, suspense, puzzlement, gradual dawning of light, and then in the second half, unexpected actions, uh, astonished recognition, a flurry of excitement and activity. It is both a wonderful, unique, spellbinding tale, and also a model. And Luke surely knew this. For a great deal of what being a Christian from that day to this is about... The slow, sad dismay at the failure of human hopes. The turning to someone who might or might not help. The discovery that in, in, in the scripture, all unexpected, there lay keys which might unlock the central mysteries and enable us to find the truth. The sudden realization of Jesus himself, present with us, warming our hearts with this truth, showing us himself as bread is broken. This describes the experience of innumerable Christians and indeed goes quite a long way to explaining what is it about Christianity that grabs us, holds us in the face of so much that is wrong in the world with the church and with ourselves. With their hope recovered, they run back seven miles and say it is true. And that's a challenge for the church. That's a challenge for you. To be honest, wherever you are, if, if you feel like God has fundamentally let you down, you might need a reorientation or you might need to realize that you're in the middle of the story, but either way, you're going to need an encounter with his promises. You're going to need the reorientation of his, of his word spoken to you. You're going to need to recognize him, and then you're going to need to go and say, it is true, our hopes are restored, our stories make sense now because they're not primarily about us. We did need God to reorient us. We did need to recognize Jesus for who he is. And so now there's nothing better for us to do than to come to this meal together. I'm going to pray for you along those categories, those who are feeling utterly dismayed, a lack of hope, flat and disillusioned, trudging home. Those of you who, who, are, who are recognizing Jesus for the first time or the millionth time, and those of you who know God is calling you to go out on this mission of love with him, to go the distance, to let other people see that it is true. He is alive, and you, we are alive because of it. I pray that the Holy Spirit would show you how you are to respond this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this story. As strange and as slow as it is, I'm glad, Father, that you work this way. And even when I want to put my hope back in power and 
and strength and violence and dominance and getting my own way and seeing it how I want to see it. I thank you that you come alongside and you walk and you ask questions and you lead us to the truth. And you show us the way of the cross. The inverted way of the kingdom that to live we do have to die to ourselves. I thank you for your patience with us. For your grace. And I pray in Jesus' name for those who feel like their hope has totally leaked out of their lives. I pray for a recovery of it this morning. That you would spark something in their minds or hearts that they would know you are with them. That you are near. That you are speaking. I pray that we would recognize you as we come to this meal. That you have been broken and poured out for us. And in Jesus' name, may we be broken and poured out for you. For our neighbors. For Brooklyn. We are your church along this pattern. Lead us by your spirit now. Show us, each of us, how to respond. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you a few moments. Um, The band will just kind of strum and I just allow you to be right where you are and just pray honest prayers to God quietly in your seat and just ask him if there's any way that he might be speaking to you or asking you to respond. And then in just a moment, we'll come to the table together.